Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter 35, Beyond the Veil. Black shapes were emerging out of thin air all around them, blocking their way left and right. Eyes glinted through slits and hoods. A dozen lit wand tips were pointing directly at their hearts. Ginny gave a gasp of horror. To me, Potter. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tech-Kyle. And we hate this chapter. At Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. There's too much and it's sad, but also confusing. (laughs) I didn't like it, Vanessa. Casper, just a couple of quick travel updates for you before we get started today. I'm going to be in London on June 18th and in Paris on June 22nd. Do you need someone to carry your bags? Yeah. Because I can't be there, but someone might want to. <laughs> Definitely thought you were volunteering. <laughs> Casper, it is your turn to tell a story. Vanessa, this summer is a big moment for me because Sean and I are moving to New York City. Which feels really exciting because I finally get to live my you've got male fantasy. But it's also super sad because I'm moving away from you and from Ariana and all sorts of other wonderful people. And so much is wrapped up in this question of home. Because Sean and I have been living in a dorm room for the last three years. And as much as you can decorate with curtains, it is still a dorm room. And so we are very excited to transition into more of an adult living situation where I don't do my washing up in the sink in the bathroom. And I actually have a kitchen where I can cook food. Not that I'm resentful. I'm very grateful. (laughs) 
But it's it's raised this question for me because, of course, all my extended family lives in Holland. My parents and my sisters live in the UK. And now I'm choosing to make my home with Sean here in the US. And so home is not one place. It's split across these three different places. And now we're embarking on a new chapter where we're trying to make a new home. And listening to our fabulous friend John Green's Anthropocene Reviewed episode where he talks about his home city of Indianapolis, he quotes the young adult author Sarah Dessen who writes that home is not a place but a moment. And that resonated for me so much because when I think of what home is, I think of specific little vignettes in my memory about my family sitting around in the living room while my dad plays Beatles songs on the piano and I'm curled up and my sister's giving me a massage and there's a roaring fireplace. Or with Sean, like doing a crossword as I'm kind of nodding off to sleep while we're listening to some opera, which I'm enduring in the background. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's these little moments. And so as I make this move and we start this new chapter, I'm trying to think of it not as, okay, New York is going to be like my new home, but thinking about making new memories that might feel like home when I look back on them in the future. Does that make sense? I really love that idea that home is a moment. Just so our listeners know, I am not dead inside in this reaction. I have known that this was coming for months because we have been planning our long-distance recording relationship for months. We've installed cables that go directly from this studio to our future bedroom studio in my house. (laughs) It's actually two red solo cups with a really long string. (laughs) With just owls flying back and forth. Yeah. I think yours and my relationship will do just fine long distance. And I'm looking forward to the fact that us reading the books together and talking about them is going to continue to be the anchor of our friendship, just with a few more miles in between. Yeah. So all of this thinking about home was interesting to me in this chapter because I struggled with it. I really struggled with this chapter this time. It's a very action-packed sequence, right? There's all sorts of spells going back and forth and new characters walking in and, and Death Eaters being revealed and people getting injured. And so there's this flurry of activity, which is very unsettling, which is kind of the opposite of what home is all about. And of course, it ends with this deeply painful loss of Sirius, that Sirius is taken away through this veil So that Harry's one remaining family member who, you know, as challenging as it was, had a physical place to which he went, which he could imagine himself calling home one day. That's all taken away from him. And so it's really the absence of home that struck me in this chapter more than anything else. Yeah, I hated this chapter. (laughs) I hated it. Well, Vanessa, why don't you put that in 30 seconds of hate? All the things that I hate? (laughs) Yeah. Great. Okay, Vanessa, here we go. Three, two, one, go. So um, Malfoy is like threatening to torture everybody. And Harry is like, if you torture them, I'll drop it. But I don't understand why they don't, the bad guys don't just kill all the other good kids anyway. Like that is just like driving me nuts. And I need us to make meaning of that. And then at the end, Dumbledore shows up and that's very exciting. And they think that Dumbledore has saved everyone, but he hasn't. And Sirius still dies. I don't know. Like, everything bad happens. Jenny breaks her ankle. Hermione is, like, passed out. Ron can't stop laughing. Yep. (laughs) This chapter made me so uncomfortable, and I'm so glad we're treating it as sacred because otherwise I just sort of want to skip it. (laughs) Now, you tell me all the things you love about the chapter so that we can, you know, be a dynamic duo. On your mark, 
Get set, go. I mean, the main thing that we experience is chaos, right? It's one fighting the other, fighting the next, and it's all moving around. Um, at some point, Hermione is cursed with this purple fire spell, which really struck me. Ron, um, the, the brain comes out and, like, attacks Ron. One of the Death Eaters gets caught in the time thing, so his head keeps going to a baby and to an adult. Um, we see um, all the kids get hurt, except at one point Neville and Luna, which struck me as interesting. Um, and then at the end, of course, the, the, um, the goodies arrive, and then they fight 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 and Tonks is hurt and then Sirius dies did you notice that the first word of the chapter is black (gasps) I know (sighs) I don't know what it means so one of the joys of treating Harry Potter as sacred yes is that things that I used to think of as plot holes I've now been able to make meaning of right so like at the beginning of book one apparating is silent Dumbledore apparates silently and later we find out that apparition is really loud including when Dumbledore apparates in book six with Harry to go visit Slughorn right and at first I was like plot hole she didn't know the apparition was going to make noise when she wrote the first book and now I'm like maybe Dumbledore can apparate silently in book one because he's at his full power and he can't in book six anymore because he's already injured or because he's apparating with Harry who doesn't know how, right? Like I've been able to make meaning of these moments, of these plot holes. The plot hole to me of like the baddies not just killing the other kids makes no sense to me. And I'm hoping that you and I can together make meaning of it. Because I'm just like, these are awful people. These are KKK members with slits in their hoods. Like somebody throws an Avada Kedavra curse. It just doesn't land. Bellatrix is ready to crucio. Like this is not because they are unwilling to murder. So why don't they, right? Like it's just the most obvious thing. I think this is a really important practice for us. And this is something that we learn from sacred text studies, right? There's always passages in sacred texts where you're like, can we skip this? Because I'm not a fan. And so there's an invitation for us to really dig in. Yeah. <laughs> so let's take this question of why Why are the other kids spared? As you said, at some point, one of the Death Eaters literally says, you know, you can kill the others. It's just Harry that we shouldn't harm because we really want this, this prophecy that he's holding. And Harry uses that very strategically, right? We see him step in front of some of the others, um, holding the prophecy to protect their bodies. There's some strategies that we see happening. Including psychological ones. He says, if you hurt any of them, I'll smash it. Right. Is that like enough? I mean, let me try this reading. Let's start with Lucius. Lucius is a parent. Lucius has literally a son, the age of most of the, the kids who are running around here. And he hates Harry. He despises Hermione. All of this is true. But he loves a child. And we will see with Narcissa how much she is willing to risk and ultimately Lucius is willing to follow her to protect their own son. So let's have one reading be there are parents among the Death Eaters who don't want to kill children needlessly. Because I I really see a difference between Bellatrix who gets pleasure from torturing Neville. And she doesn't even want to kill him straight away because she wants to see him suffer and she wants him to know that it was her that did this to his parents, right? Like, there is a sadistic thing going on there. But there's gradations even within, I don't want to say like there's good people on both sides at all. And yet, if we can read it this way, I I do think we see some restraint potentially. No, that's helpful that even all people acting badly are not acting badly in the same way, which is different than there are good people on both sides, right? Absolutely. Like there are like 
regular soldiers who get called up to do something terrible, and then there are the people who are planning something terrible, right? Like, those are different gradations. Okay, and I find that compelling and that the reason that at the end of the chapter in Avada Kedavra, curse gets yelled is because the frustration level has lifted, Mm -hmm. and it's just like, I don't even care anymore, and that Bellatrix doesn't attack any of the others until this point because she, as being so loyal to Voldemort, is like anything for the prophecy, right? Even if I love torturing children, I will like hold myself back because anything for His Majesty Voldemort. Well, I think Voldemort is actually really important, even though he's not in this scene, because I don't think Voldemort expected Harry to come with a bigger crew. Right. He might have anticipated Hermione and Ron. I don't even think he did that. He certainly did not anticipate Ginny, Luna, and Neville. And so one reason might be they have received explicit instructions not to hurt Harry while he has, you know, this glowing orb with the prophecy. So there might also just be confusion. Right. Um, Right. That sense of like, well, I don't want to do anything wrong because we're going to see how terrified all of these people are of Voldemort. So that might also be at play. Okay. See, I'm so glad I bring you difficult questions because I love both of what you've done. One is I was seeing them as a herd, right? Like Mm -hmm. death eaters. And you broke them down for me into individuals and saying like, maybe they are all making this decision to not use Avada Kedavra for different reasons. And we also know as a society, right? Like if you see one person acting in a certain way, everybody is like, oh, Malfoy is the one in charge right now and he's not hurting anyone. So maybe I shouldn't hurt one either. Oh, and it, that's good. And it's like a domino effect. And then I also love that you brought us to like Voldemort, who to get to our theme finally is home for all of these people, right? They've returned to him to this moment where they were on top. He is their home, which brings me to another really interesting point in this chapter which is when Harry says to Bellatrix, he's not a pureblood about Voldemort. love this moment. Right? It's wild when he's like, you love purebloods? He's not one. And it makes Bellatrix so mad. It's not new information to her, right? She's not like, he's not one drop, I quit, right? Like, she's still willing to torture for him. She still loves him, we see in the next chapter. So this is not shocking news to her. So is it just that like Voldemort is so her sense of home that there's some sort of nationalism in the same way that we see, right? Like there was this like idea of Aryan purity and Hitler looked nothing like it, but it doesn't matter because he's our leader and he's our home. Like what, how do you unpack that? I find this whole scene fascinating on so many levels. First of all, there's this truth-telling about Voldemort, which is unsettling and and destabilizing, especially for Bellatrix. And and I think this is true with home, right? We all have a certain story about what home is and how it is. And I can tease my brother, but you better not, right? Like, (laughs) I don't want to say that that's what she's doing right now. He's my half-blood to tease, you know? Yeah. But But there's something about, like, don't you dare come and interrupt my story about what my home is. But the other thing that I just thought was more mysterious is that Harry is saying Voldemort, which is so scary for the Death Eaters, you dare say his name, but that is still not his name. Right. right. His actual name is Tom Riddle. I would say if we're really going to get to Voldemort's home life, to his parents, to the place he grew up in, that was Tom. He wasn't Voldemort then. And I think naming is such a sign of intimacy and what makes something home, right? Like, 
you know, when my uncle died, this is one of my favorite stories, his whole phone contact list <laughs> was full of these names that people were like, who is pirate? Who is double caterpillar bum? Like, j- and so they would have to call and be like, is that double caterpillar bum? <laughs> and people were like, yeah. <laughs> it was a sign of honor, right? Like at his memorial service, people kind of showed off the name that they had because it was a sign that he loved and respected them. Yeah. I love that idea of of naming as a way of making a moment home or make you know making a relationship home. And I think that the reason that nobody calls Voldemort Tom, right, is he has no home on purpose. Mm. He is he's trying to build an empire. He's not trying to build a home, right? Like he's branded himself. Wow. To think of oneself as intentionally without a place or without a relationship. And we know that Bellatrix desperately wants more of a relationship with him. And Voldemort is always the one who is coldly cutting that off. That that is the sign of empire. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's one of the things that Tim Snyder says about creating tyranny, right? Is that one of the ways to fight tyranny is to know your neighbor's name Mm. and to make small talk with your neighbors and to make eye contact with your neighbors. And that way, when you don't come out of your house for four days, they're going to be like, why? Where did Casper go? Where did Caterpillar Bum go, right? And like the more intimate you are with your neighbors, the better it is to fight tyranny. And so he is intentionally trying to distance relationships as much as possible in order to be tyrannical. Which is why we also see this uniform that the Death Eaters wear, right? They're literally hiding their faces, not only from the rest of the world, but perhaps also from one another, right? That there's an absence of knowing that makes this tyranny possible. And it's it's in the unmasking, as we see throughout this chapter, right? People lose their hoods or their faces become visible, that they become more vulnerable physically. But also, I feel like they become more vulnerable relationally because now, now they're seen, they're known. The first step to that is that we hear their names being said, right? Lucius says, McNair and Dolohoff, you go that way. You know, Beltrix, you're with me over this way. So first we hear their names and then we start seeing their faces. So it's this kind of unraveling of tyranny during the chapter. I love that. That's cool. Also, patriarchy, even in the Death Eater community, because men often get called by their last names as a sign of respect and then women always get called by their first names. I'm so embarrassed I hadn't seen that. No, I. it's just, it's everywhere, right? We're like, yeah. Obama, Hillary. I'm not going to bless Bellatrix for having to deal with the patriarchy within the Death Eater community. So <laughs> We'll save that for next time around. <laughs> we'll save that for when I have a death wish. Um, but... Uh. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. There's another thing just in this idea of name and home that really struck me, which is that home can betray us, Mm -hmm. right? Like where we come from. It might be in our accent or it might be the references we use or the the name of our family or or our skin color, right? There's ways in which the, the places where we're from or the just the signs of where home is can betray us. And that struck me in how Bellatrix recognizes Neville and immediately targets him because yeah. she realizes he's his parents' son. Sorry, that just made me nauseous remembering that. This conversation is already helpful because I do think part of the reason I don't like this chapter is that it's confusing. Mm. It's also the part of every action movie where I tune out, right? Like, I'm anti-war, <laughs> which I know. Big news. I know. And, like, this is a battle scene, and I just hate it. I just hate it. And Mm. that doesn't mean that it doesn't belong in this book. I do think a scene of complete chaos and battle and revenge-seeking has its home in this series. Mm. This is war, and war is madness. But, man, do I hate stewing in it. Mm. So there's a beautiful moment to me of home that I would love to call our attention to. And that is when, as you mentioned in your 30-second recap, Hermione gets attacked with this, like, curse across her chest. Yeah, it's this purple fire, which is such a striking image. I I had missed that before. Yeah, I I missed it even now. But your obsession with it is I'm like, oh, yes, it was a purple fire. (laughs) And Harry reaches for her shoulder to Mm. touch it, and she's still warm. So that gives him just a little bit of peace. And then Neville confirms, right? He's like, that's a pulse. And just that instinct of, like, wanting to reach out and touch Hermione, I was like, oh, Hermione is one of your homes, right? Like, there's Mm. the expression touchstone. I was like, Hermione is literally one of your touchstones, one of your home bases, right? Because the Dursleys isn't home for him. And Grimmauld Place was potentially a place where he could imagine one day being home for him. But he's not allowed to stay there now. And so home for Harry is Ron and Hermione. This is so interesting because I've always struggled— with how much the relationship between Harry and Sirius means to Harry. There's so little time for them to form an actual relationship that, of course, it's just the promise that sustains Harry. You know, in in this chapter, I I both felt a loss, but I think it's more a loss of what could have been than really what was. 
for that relationship. But what could have been matters, right? When when yeah. Harry turned 17 and no longer would need the protection of the Dursleys, he would have gotten to go home with, yeah. to Grimmauld Place. And he would have been able to stay with Sirius for the rest of his life and been a proper millennial who, <laughs> like, while in horror training, lived with his godfather, right? Like, right. I mean, Sirius is young, right? There's 50 years of potential relationship yeah. lost between the two of them. Sirius won't be at his wedding. He was at James and Lily's wedding, and Sirius would have been one of the few people who could, like, be at both weddings. And all of those, like, generational things have been lost with the loss of Sirius. Do you know what just struck me? Is that Harry has Sirius, and Voldemort never had a Sirius, yeah. right? Dumbledore's there in both their lives. The rest of the school is there in both their lives. But maybe that's the missing link. Like, who knows what would have happened to Harry without that kind of familial connection? Riddle has no one to, like, run into a fireplace to talk to, right? No, no one to place their wishes on and to imagine the building to be theirs or a place to go to. I'm kind of undoing my own earlier point by seeing actually the massive importance of Sirius to Harry of a promise of a life of home and how this loss is that final taking away. And, and I think it's important that it happens in the very chapter where we see the prophecy. Now, we we don't yet know what it means or or understand its fullness, but the fact that the prophecy is released in the moment that Sirius dies, to me, says that there's perhaps a decision point here that Harry says, okay, like, this is my life. My destiny is to fulfill this thing. It's not to think about a future with a Grimmel place and a godfather and a fireplace. And, you know, I, I just wonder if this is the moment where that really shifts for him. I really believe in the power of imagining better futures. Yes. And not in a, if I wish for it, then it will happen way, right, right. but in a, if I can visualize it, then I can work toward it right. way. Jill Lepore talks about this moment in her book, These Truths, that Frederick Douglass, you know, spent his entire life fighting for the rights of black Americans, you know, and he like really pushed Lincoln through emancipation and was like constantly calling on people to be better. Like the Civil War is not enough. It has to be a war against slavery and emancipation isn't enough. You have to give black men the right to vote, mm. you know, and he was always pushing people. And then right at the end of his life, Jim Crow got passed. Wow. And in the speech, the, his final speech that he wrote, and he wrote it in particular to give it this one school, and he wrote a hopeful speech. Mm. He wrote a speech about the future that he envisioned, right? The, like, I have a dream speech, mm. right, that Martin Luther King, we know, will give about 70 years later. And the fact that Frederick Douglass can see so much progress throughout his life and then at the end of his life see such a huge step back and then make the active choice to say, here is what I still see for our future and still be hopeful. All of the best leaders, I think, are like, I see something better. Now let's work our way toward it. And I, I just love your point that it saves Harry that he was given this focal point of serious, of like, I see a better family than the one that I have to deal with with the Dursleys. Hmm. And therefore, I can work my way toward that. And I do. I think that those stories when used correctly, save us. Oh, that's beautiful, Vanessa. And and there's little echoes of that sensibility, I think, in this chapter, even in a very, very small moment, like Ginny saying, I'm fine and trying to walk even though her ankle's broken. Yeah. Right? Like it's, cho it's choosing to say I can even when there's this full pain that really 
debilitates her. And it, in Neville going to follow Harry as he's entering this room, even though Ron is still dealing with this like terrifying like brain toffee, there's there's a an insistence on possibility and hope, which feels stupid in the moment. It feels completely incorrect. And yet just with Frederick Douglass, we hope that story is is forever moving forward. So to here, we see how all of them really help Harry make it through until out of nowhere, right there comes the Order of the Phoenix and suddenly the game has changed. Certainly when Dumbledore door arrives. But they all needed each other to stay alive until the order happened. Exactly. Right? The order isn't this like secret thing that just emerges to the moral and the good, right? Like it's because they were able to keep each other alive for long enough. That's right. And because Snape has made all these sacrifices, like it's because of all of these like layers and layers of sacrifices and strategies that that thing can come at the end. And there's still despair, right? There's still a material loss. Serious dies. Even though there is hope and the order comes and, you know, saves the day to some extent, not all are saved. So even mm. if we tell each other these beautiful stories, that doesn't mean that there isn't loss. That's right. I mean, there was still 70 years of Jim Crow, right? Right. And still mass incarceration today. Yeah. You know? So, Casper, we are going to do another week of sacred imagination. And so what we ask everybody to do with sacred imagination is to really imagine themselves into this moment. Like, is it hot or cold in this room? Are you feeling lightheaded? Where are your hands? Really just completely imagine yourself as I read you this passage. Double door, said Neville, his sweaty face suddenly transported, staring over Harry's shoulder. What? Dumbledore. Harry turned to look where Neville was staring. Directly above them, framed in the doorway from the brain room, stood Albus Dumbledore, his wand aloft, his face white and furious. Harry felt a kind of electric charge surge through every particle of his body. They were saved. Dumbledore had already sped past Neville and Harry, who had no more thoughts of leaving, when the Death Eaters nearest realized Dumbledore was there and yelled to the others. One of the Death Eaters ran for it, scrabbling like a monkey up the stone steps opposite. Dumbledore's spell pulled him back as easily and effortlessly as though he had hooked him with an invisible line. Only one couple were still battling, apparently unaware of the new arrival. Harry saw Sirius duck Bellatrix's jet of red light. He was laughing at her. "'Come on, you can do better than that,' he yelled, his voice echoing around the cavernous room." The second jet of light hit him squarely on the chest. The laughter had not quite died from his face, but his eyes widened in shock. Harry released Neville, though he was unaware of doing so. Harry jumped to the ground, pulling out his wand as Dumbledore turned to the dais, too. It seemed to take Sirius an age to fall. His body curved in a graceful arc as he sank backwards through the ragged veil hanging from the arch. And Harry saw the look of mingled fear and surprise on his godfather's wasted, once handsome face as he fell through the ancient doorway and disappeared behind the veil, which fluttered for a moment as though in a high wind and then fell back into place. Oh my God, I'm so angry. I'm Dumbledore and I'm so angry 
First of all, I'm mad that this whole situation happened. Like, I've been planning for months how to figure out to take down Voldemort. I've got different strategies, and suddenly this has happened, and I'm vulnerable, not only from Voldemort, but the ministry. Like, this is not how I wanted it to happen. I've seen Hermione's body, maybe. Like, I think maybe she's dead. And now Sirius is, like, he's literally shouting at her, you can do better than that, and then gets killed. I'm so mad because now I'm looking at Harry and I see Harry watching his godfather die. And I know that it's just a whole other layer of pain and and trauma for Harry. I'm like genuinely angry. I'm like, this is your fault. Stupid. Ugh. Do you think Dumbledore is saying that to himself or to Sirius? No, to Sirius. Yeah. I mean, literally for this, for him dying. But he's also been kind of leading Harry on for not looking out for himself and his relationship with Creature better. I, I can just feel Dumbledore's fury at this whole situation. I love that reading. I just also think Dumbledore is probably mad at himself. Mm. I think he's like, God damn it, you had to egg her on. Yeah. But I think that Dumbledore is also like, this was a tactical fail on my part. I left on that phoenix and like, I should have known that yeah. these children would have tried to get involved. What it reminded me of was when I will never forget who told me, my friend Oliver told me that my friend Brandy died. Tears started streaming down my face as I was still arguing with him that it had happened. Mm. And so my body like understood that she was dead, but I was like, no, she can't be dead. I just saw her yesterday at four and like that's not enough time for someone to die. Mm. And I was really like logistically arguing with him. And I was like, why am I crying? And I got so mad that I was crying because I knew she wasn't dead. I feel like that was really evoked in describing Sirius's face Mm. where he's like half shocked and still laughing and half scared. And I just, I guess I just appreciate that he is described as scared, right? Mm. That he... He has provoked this. And I wonder if Sirius is scared in part because he's like, I did this in front of Harry, right? Like, same as Dumbledore. I wonder if he's like, oh, my God, this kid, he just watched me provoke myself into death. I just think that we can, in these heightened moments, can have so many feelings at once. Yeah. I also am just curious, you know, it's something that I try to be careful of in my language. When we're put in terrible situations and we act foolishly, we say it's my fault. Like it's Sirius's fault uh, he was goading Bellatrix. Yeah. It's like it's not his fault that Bellatrix killed him. She wanted to murder him. Like she's the bad guy here. And yet I don't know why we do that, but we do, right? Mm. And I I think you're right. The Dumbledore is probably blaming Sirius and blaming himself. And I think that, you know— We should blame Bellatrix. Right, like Bellatrix is the murderer. I doubt that Sirius is throwing Avada Kedavra curses at her. He's probably just trying to disarm her or whatever. And she chooses to become the murderer, And so I I don't know why we do that if it's that we've siphoned off certain people as just bad and therefore in order to make meaning of how it could have gone differently, the thing that we can't do is control Bellatrix, but we can try to do some meaning making by saying where did we make mistakes? Mm. But like everybody was doing the best that they could in a chaotic moment and Bellatrix is the original sin here. Yeah. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. 
if you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail today is from Sarah Jane Hassanauer Kinsley. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. My name is Sarah Jane, and I'm calling from Halifax. I was listening to your episode on entitlement recently and was really struck by the conversation that came up around cups, particularly around cups as an invitation or as a healing object. What it made me think of was the teacup that Harry steps on at the very beginning of the seventh book that he immediately thinks of as an awful attempt at a booby trap by Dudley, but later he realizes that it might have actually been a gesture of goodwill. That scene made me think of the formal interview rounds I had to do last year, where at every firm, an interviewer would ask if I'd like something to drink, and I'd say yes, even though I wasn't going to drink it for fear of like choking or spilling. And I was thinking about how this ritual of offering a cup of something can be really healing or an invitation, as you pointed out in the episode. In the cases of these interviews, I think the offer and acceptance of this gesture let us both relax. However, in situations like Harry and Dudley's, where the relationship is just so broken, Dudley's gesture is immediately perceived as a threat. And in fact, even if Dudley had offered the tea to Harry outright, I think Harry probably still would have been really suspicious. All of this got me thinking about the Me Too movement and the collective grieving of the world right now in the face of all sorts of uncomfortable and traumatizing conversations that can't be healed by just simply falling back on these simple rituals, because those relationships with individuals and institutions are too broken for that ritual offering of a cup to be meaningful yet. So I wanted to offer a blessing to everyone that's struggling in the wake of the Me Too movement or anyone struggling to repair a relationship because I think so often that there are a lot of missteps in the reparation process and I suspect that there will be a lot of broken teacups before there is healing. Thank you so much for the work that you do. The podcast is such a bright spot in my week. 
Sarah Jane, I'm going to just relay a story that Stephanie Paulsell often tells, which is that when she was asked for the first time while she was training to be a minister to offer communion, she said to the head minister who was asking her and empowering her to do this, she said, I don't think I feel comfortable doing this because I think it's really beautiful when you do it, but I don't understand it. And so I don't think I should do it. And the minister said back to her, we don't do it because we understand it. We do it because we don't understand it. That's a story that means a lot to me because I think that the thing about ritual is that it sustains us even through the broken teacups. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we say we require to treat something as sacred is rigor and that we need the rigor of those rituals to get us through the moments of despair. And then I think eventually, if it's like really not doing anything for us, it's fine to drop those rituals. I really appreciate what you're saying. I absolutely think that certain things are broken and we just have to honor their brokenness. But I also think that there is a time that ritual can get us through that brokenness. Well, and imagine if there was a new teacup every morning, right? Like doing it one time is not a ritual. It, it's an act of generosity, yes, but it can be interpreted in all these ways. If Harry woke up every day to a teacup outside his room, that would be completely different. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone in this chapter, and there's a lot of people running around. So who are you blessing this week? I'm going to offer a blessing to Ginny for saying I'm fine, even on a broken ankle. And I think the thing is that she's right, right? A broken ankle is something that can be healed entirely. And so I think that the core message of, like, she is fine. She can't walk, but she's fine. And so I don't think she's just being proud. I don't think she's lying or misinterpreting. I think she's saying, my injury is not an injury we need to worry about right now, whereas potentially Hermione's injury is. Like, she could be bleeding from her leg, and then she wouldn't be fine, and they would need to address it. It's not going to become more broken. It's just broken. I just think that she is, like, noticing the hierarchy of needs in this moment, and, like, her ankle is not high on that hierarchy. And I think when you're in pain, that is a really hard thing to remember. And I just want to applaud her for that. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? I would like to bless Neville. I mean, we see how courageous he is. I think I'd kind of forgotten all the intermediary steps that we see between like his courage glow up, as it were, <laughs> right between now and book seven. And here's just another moment. In particular, there's a moment where Harry is supporting Ron, Luna is supporting Ginny, and Neville is supporting Hermione. And it just echoed to me that scene in the very first book where Ron, Hermione, and Harry kind of stupefy Neville to be able to get out of the Gryffindor common room. And he is Neville like carrying Hermione's body in the same state. I just felt like such a little echo to that earlier moment. And it it speaks to Neville's, again, his his fidelity in this moment, yes, to his friends, but really to his parents, that he goes to fight for their memory, that his stake in this is not just supporting Harry, but is to honor his to his parents. And he does it without ego, right? Yeah. He's like, I'll carry Hermione, you're a better fighter. Right. I think Neville's incredible. He is. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. There's wonderful conversations that happen there. Come and join the hundreds of people supporting us on Patreon and leave us a review on iTunes or send us a voicemail. We hope to see you at one of our live shows soon. Vanessa will be in London on June 18th and Paris on June 22nd. 
doing shows, not just being there. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 36, The Only One He Ever Feared, through the theme of jealousy. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. And our associate producer, we are proud to announce, is Chelsea Urson. Our music, as always, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bowl, and we are a proud part of Night Vale Presents. Thanks to Sarah Jane Hassanawa Kinsley for her voicemail, Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. I'm refused to sit through. That's the worst thing I could do. Oh, I kind of forget that that thing is on. <laughs>